The PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber Cancer Institute laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. At first, they appear out of nowhere, tiny white shapes on the gray horizon. But as you get closer, you realize that's ice. We're on the deck of a large ship, slowly cruising along the coast of Antarctica, and I just can't stop staring at these jaw-droppingly beautiful icebergs. They come in every shape imaginable. Arches, walls, diamonds balancing on their tips. Some of them are quite small, Others are as big as entire cities, towering 20 or 30 stories above the ocean. These huge pieces of ice were once securely attached to the Antarctic continent. And now they're just out here, riding the currents of the Southern Ocean. From the PBS NewsHour, this is The Last Continent, a four-part journey to Antarctica. I'm William Brangham. The fact is, icebergs have been breaking off Antarctica for millions of years. It's part of the natural cycle of how ice gets made and unmade on Earth. But now, in a warming world, it's hard to not also see these icebergs as something much more ominous, because we know Antarctica's ice is now slipping away faster and faster. One recent study showed it's disappearing six times faster than just 40 years ago. I can still remember the first day I appreciated that the ice could change fast. Robin Bell works at Columbia University's Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory, and she has been studying the ice on both Antarctica and Greenland for decades. She says a few years ago, she got an alarming call from one of her colleagues about some data from Greenland that had just come in. It was one of these memories that's burned into your head. You could hear the fear in his voice. He's saying the ice is changing faster than we thought it could. And that moment is like seared into my brain because you aren't supposed to hear fear in scientists. We thought that ice changed really slowly, that it would take eons. And suddenly we're seeing it can retreat, it can drop, it can speed up, it can lose mass really quickly. That data, along with many subsequent studies over the years, have helped convince scientists that as we keep burning oil and gas and coal and all that carbon goes up into the atmosphere and warms up the planet, the world's ice is reacting. Antarctica's ice is reacting. So the signal from the ice sheets is the poster child for our changing climate because we can see it as human beings. We can't see CO2 changing, but we can see the ice sheets that are responding to the warming ocean in the warming atmosphere. We can see their signal. Just from this surface map alone, is there clearly two very deep fjords there? Oh, wow, yeah, interesting. uh, That, you know, if the ice sheet margin were here... 
7,000 miles from Antarctica, in a big office complex in Maryland, a team of scientists and researchers at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center is trying to measure precisely how much of Antarctica's ice is being lost. I'm Joseph McGregor, I prefer Joe, and I'm a glaciologist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and I'm also a project scientist for NASA's Operation Ice Bridge. For several years, Joe's team at NASA has been flying back and forth over the continent, shooting radar and ground-penetrating lasers down onto the ice. The goal is to figure out how thick it is, how fast it's moving, and whether it's growing or shrinking. What we found is that some places are thinning by several feet, in, in some cases even tens of feet, per year. And uh, that is indicative of a rapid retreat and that this system is overall out of balance. It's sort of like a a crude version of a bank account, meaning how much money are you adding to it in the form of ice versus how much (laughs) are you losing in the form of melt? Exactly. And so what we now know is that those bank accounts are in deficit for both Greenland and Antarctica. And Antarctica is now losing 252 gigatons of ice per year. So what does that mean, 252 gigatons of ice per year? As with everything Antarctic, scale is really hard to convey. But here's one measure. In just the amount of time it takes to listen to this episode, about 15 minutes, Antarctica will have lost about 1.7 billion gallons worth of ice. That's nearly twice as much water as the millions of people in New York City use each day. Gone. Now, this doesn't mean that all of Antarctica's ice is going to disappear. No serious researcher says that that's on the near horizon. But if the atmosphere and the oceans continue to warm, melting ice could flood the homes and cities where millions and millions of people now live. Here's Princeton University's Michael Oppenheimer. He's a longtime participant in the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's becoming clearer that parts of Antarctica appear to be unstable and are losing ice much faster than we expected. So ultimately, if we lose all the ice that's vulnerable to a warming of only a few degrees, we're talking about a very, very, very big sea level rise. A trillion ton iceberg, which we're just hearing, has uh, broken off Antarctica. Remember the stories you've been hearing about Antarctica? Shelves in the West Antarctic are shrinking a lot faster than they realized. Scientists are predicting a 110-mile sheet of ice, a chunk the size of the state of Delaware, will break off Antarctica in the coming days or weeks. Those are all stories about Antarctica's ice shelves coming apart. An ice shelf is a platform of ice that grows out from the huge glaciers that sit perched on the perimeter of Antarctica. Think of a baseball cap. The big round part that fits on your head, that's the glacier. The bill is the shelf sticking out into the ocean. If you hang out with glaciologists and others who study ice long enough, you'll keep hearing the metaphor of the glass of ice water. It's a good one, okay? So imagine a glass full of ice water in front of you. When the ice melts, your glass doesn't overflow because the ice was already displacing the water. And so when one of those big ice shelves in Antarctica breaks up, that also does not cause sea level rise because... Just like your glass, the ice was already in the water, 
But those ice shelves coming apart can set off a chain reaction that can cause some very serious sea level rise. If the ice shelves go away, the ice will flow faster into the ocean. Robin Bell says those shelves, some of which are as big as Texas, help bolster the glaciers they're connected to. They kind of keep them propped up on the land. You take away the shelf, those glaciers start moving more quickly down to the water. So you can imagine a piece of ice the size of Texas, pretty thick, is going to slow the ice as it tries to flow into the ocean. They're essentially acting as bouncers in the bar, leaning up against the door and keeping the ice from flowing into the ocean. This exact dynamic occurred in 2002. The Larsen B ice shelf disintegrated, and the glaciers behind it began moving faster towards the ocean. And when a glacier moves into the ocean, that can cause really big sea level rise. Think back to your glass of ice water. If you suddenly add new ice to it, now it overflows. That overflowing is sea level rise. Some of the people who've been studying Antarctica's ice say that there are two glaciers on the west coast, the Pine Island Glacier and the Thwaites Glacier, that are truly worrying. The shelves in front of them have been thinning and breaking up, and the glaciers are now moving. It's definitely Thwaites and its adjacent glacier Pine Island. That region in the Amundsen Sea is really moving quite fast. Alexandra Isern is with the National Science Foundation. She says some glaciologists believe those glaciers might have already passed the point of no return, meaning no matter what we do now, even if everyone switched to electric cars and we all moved to 100% clean energy today, some of these colossal structures of ice are already destined to slip into the ocean. And some researchers already speculate that we've gone beyond this place where they're going to start catastrophically failing. And the amount of water above sea level, which when it mounts then raises sea level, is quite substantial. It's many tens of meters. Michael Oppenheimer notes that if just one of these glaciers were to end up in the ocean, the UN's predictions of about one foot of sea level rise by the end of the century will look optimistic in the extreme. The current estimates are if the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica were to totally disintegrate into the ocean, that ultimately sea level would rise by something like five feet. And that much sea level rise would be very, very difficult and expensive to defend against. In areas around some of our biggest cities, New York, Boston, Miami, where you've got a lot of development, homes, buildings, infrastructure like roads, right up by the coast, very close to sea level. How do you defend those? Certain areas like New York City, they're going to protect Manhattan. The real estate is too valuable. But how would Bangladesh protect itself? It's got many hundreds of miles of coastline. It's all right at sea level. You can't build a wall to protect that whole coast. Two years ago, we saw how quickly Bangladesh could flood. The heavy rains that fell on Southeast Asia in 2017 killed about 1,200 people. All that water flooded a third of Bangladesh. Think of that. A third of a country where 150 million people live was underwater. The damage was immense. 
The death toll from monsoon flooding across South Asia surged again to more than 1,200. It's caused the worst flooding in decades, and it's led to a massive humanitarian crisis across the entire region. Oppenheimer says sea level rise could make flooding like that permanent. It could force huge numbers of people in Bangladesh from their homes. That's millions of people that are going to have to move. Right. And where are they going to go in such a densely populated country? And there's already strife when people try to move into India. People get killed trying to do that now. What's going to happen when you have a few million people that all of a sudden try to move? It's not a pretty picture. Of course, Bangladesh is just one low-lying country on Earth. There are many more. Many of the world's biggest cities are right at sea level. Huge cities in India and China, not to mention the U.S., all places that are vulnerable to an even small rise in the ocean. So the world has to get used to this idea that people are going to be moving due to sea level rise. Um, so it doesn't mean we should all throw up our hands and run, but it means two things. Number one, we have to focus a lot of scientific effort on what's going on. And number two, regardless, we know sea level is rising, we know it's accelerating, we know we're going to have to protect certain areas. We know we're going to have to abandon other areas. Let's start thinking straight. Let's start thinking fast about how we're going to help people because a lot of it is not going to be pretty. It's going to be expensive and it's going to be disruptive if we don't get our act together now. My colleagues Emily Carpo and Mike Fritz were on this trip to Antarctica with me, and we talked a lot about the dichotomy of Antarctica, how such a jaw-droppingly beautiful place could also hold such a looming threat. Here's Mike. Several people asked me when I got back, it was like, oh, God, I bet that was terrifying to see what you saw down there in Antarctica. I mean, it looks just, like, is it just awful, like, what's going on? And it was like... While you're there, you don't really have any idea. People were saying, wasn't it awful, meaning to see glaciers, like, falling into the yeah, ocean? Yeah, like, I think they thought, like, you would just see, you know, that all the ice you would see, and it was just melting. But it was a textbook tour of Antarctica. I mean, there was nothing that I'd ever seen like Antarctica. I mean, there was literally nothing that kind of prepares you for just how breathtaking that place is. It didn't feel like anything was happening, but I do, like, distinctly remember thinking, like, you could not quantify the loss that it would be if it wasn't there anymore. I feel like the experience I had going there is something that I wish everyone could experience. And the idea that that kind of beauty wouldn't exist anymore, I found just, like, deeply depressing. We spent our last day on the ship back from Antarctica with Ron Naveen. He's the longtime penguin researcher who we first met in episode two. I find it incomprehensible that somebody could come to the Antarctic and not be touched by what they see. Ron's been studying the birds on the continent for almost 40 years, and he has seen how climate change might be hurting them, too. He argues that the more people see of Antarctica, the more they learn about it and its wildlife and its ice the more they'll be moved to act in ways that protect it. There's certainty now that climate change is happening. And the message the penguins, I think, are sending me and sending all of us 
is that we, we really have to be courageous, all of us. We're all in this boat together. And I would hope that us humans, who actually think a heck of a lot more than penguins do, penguins don't do a lot of reasoning in that little pea brain. No long-term planning. No long-term planning in those heads. They've figured out how to survive. It seems to me that us humans who actually can think about this, if they have the right tools and the right understanding and their hearts in the right place, we can think of a better way to take care of ourselves in the future. If you want to actually see what Antarctica looks like, the ice, the penguins, plus all the people we talk to, visit our website, pbs.org slash newshour slash the last continent. There you can find our video series that first aired on the NewsHour broadcast, plus other photographs and extras. And to hear all four episodes of The Last Continent, make sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Last Continent was produced by Vika Aronson, Mike Fritz, Emily Carpo, and me, William Brangham. Editing by Erica R. Hendry. Production assistance by Chris Ford. Fact-checking was done by Seacon Akpan, Maya Lene Bura, Amber Partida, and Zoe Rorick. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Travis Daub, Vanessa Dennis, Brennan Butler, Stefan Rode, James Williams, Julia Griffin, Dan Cooney, Dima Zane, Malia Posey, Adam Saraf, and Laura Strum. Thanks also to Dan Devaney and Bruce Kane at WETA-FM. Sarah Just is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. And please don't forget to let us know what you think of the show. Tweet us at NewsHour or leave us a review in Apple Podcasts.